Father, the preaching of Christ is your appointed means of building the church. That's what I intend to do now. Would you use it to build your church? I face a task that is above my ability. But you give your enabling spirit. Use this exposition as gospel balm. Apply it where needed. And apply it liberally. Mend us with the gospel. Encourage us with the gospel. Convict us with the gospel. Sin is definitely on display in this text. We are presented with the problem. So please, give us the answer. Give us Jesus Christ. Give us the Savior. This is our corporate plea. Amen. There are some chapters in the Bible that I wish I didn't have to preach. This is one. This is one of the saddest events ever recorded on the pages of Scripture. I found myself weeping as I read. You, you can't read this account in a cold, detached manner. You can't help but to experience an emotional reaction. You, you feel empathy. You, you will find yourself wanting to climb into the story and, and say, Stop! What is happening? You, you will want to slap some people in the text. You will want to hug some people in the text. Especially one who really needs a hug. The intent of the narrator is to shock you. He wants you to be aghast, repulsed, outraged, sad. He succeeds. Church, I want to talk to you about why you need this text and truthfully, why I'm hesitant to preach this text. We do consecutive expository preaching through books. So I, don't, so I don't have the liberty to skip over passages like this. I hesitate because in these verses are sordid and monstrous crime. This is not your typical kid Sunday school lesson. It's a tragic tale of lust, rape, incest, revenge... Murder. I'm fully aware it could be a trigger for some of you to relive painful experiences in your past. I'm not interested in bringing up those memories and victimizing you all over again. While studying, I found myself asking, why would this even be found in the Bible? Then it hit me. It's here because you need it. It's here because it's real. It's here because it happens. It's happened to some of you. This is a bruised and battered text for a bruised and battered people. It's hard, but it's the good kind of hard. Some of you that are non-Christians may argue that texts like this are normalizing violence. Like the narratives of war and pillaging, this narrative of sexual assault normalizes the act. However, you must understand that the Bible is not afraid to address the uncomfortable realities of life. 
This is the world we live in. It's a fallen world. The answer is not to ignore what happened. This text, not handled correctly, could be devastating for some of you. On the flip side, this text handled rightly could be life-changing for some of you. When you face deep wounds, you can't go to a shallow God. I will introduce you to a deep God who can handle your deep wounds. Now, I need to put our text today in, into the greater context. Everything that happens in this chapter is a repercussion of David's previous sins. Nathan's prophecy that the sword would never depart out of David's house is beginning to work itself out. There's a mounting avalanche of disaster. The consequences of forgiven sin can be painful. While Jesus absorbs sin's punishment, he does not always remove every consequence. This chapter walks out some of the consequences over a five-year span. As we walk through this narrative, we will at times bend down, pick up a truth, and spend time meditating on it. I want you to get lost in the narrative, but I don't want the narrative to get lost on you. So we will pick up truths along the way and tuck them away in our pockets. Because we will need to hang on to them. Let's meet the characters in this narrative. Verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. King David has many wives. He's gone against God's revealed pattern for marriage in Genesis. He's gone against God's direct command for Israel's king. Do not accumulate multiple wives. Do not be like the pagan kings. David marries Michael, then Abigail, then uh, Ahinium, then Maha, three other wives, and then a ton of concubines. Bathsheba is his latest wife. David's third wife bore him a son named Amnon. Amnon was David's oldest son and the perceived heir to the throne. He's the favored son. That's obvious from this text. It wasn't unusual, especially in this culture, to show favoritism to your oldest boy. Amnon is the most obvious candidate to fulfill God's promises to David. It's unusual. He's not mentioned first in the verse. The narrator does that on purpose. David's fourth wife bore him Absalom and Tamar. Or Tamar is probably the correct pronunciation. The A sound isn't really used in Hebrew. You're used to hearing it pronounced Tamar, so I will stick with that throughout. Uh, Absalom was David's third-born son, and he was a handsome fellow. The next chapter reveals that. David and Maha made beautiful children. These kids had good genes. Absalom is mentioned for his studliness. Tamar is mentioned for her beauty. Only a few women are described as very beautiful in the Bible, and she is one. She is very attractive. 
She walks onto the stage of our narrative as a vibrant, loving, kind, godly woman. Those are the characters. David is the father, and these three are his children. Absalom and Tamar, full brother and sister. Amnon is the half-brother. Same dad, different mom. These three kids grew up in the same house. David's white house, his palace. There are a lot of other kids. You can imagine with that many wives and concubines, the house is full of children. It's like an elementary school playground. The focus, however, is only on these three. They are grown now. Amnon has his own house. Absalom has his own house. They each have a part in the family business. Amnon has all the kingly stuff, since he's the first in line. Absalom has a sheep farm, since he's the third in line. It's not bad. It's not bad to be beautiful. But it can invite unwanted attention. Such was the case for Tamar. It said that after a time, Amnon loved her. This was not the case while they were children. But as Tamar began to grow and develop physically, Amnon loved her. Now you see the problem. They are half-siblings. The Mosaic law forbids sexual relations with a full sibling or a half-sibling. The narrator uses the word love because Amnon thinks he's in love. He thinks he's been hit by Cupid's arrow. He thinks he's got love and he's got it bad. But he only loves the body, not the soul in the body. He loves her with his glands. It's time for us to bend down now and pick up the first truth. This text gives a particularly putrid example of this truth, but you all have it in lesser ways. Your glands are affected by the fall. You will want some things that God doesn't want you to have. Your glands are affected by the fall. You will want some things that God doesn't want you to have. This is not love. This is lust. You, like Amnon, will try to convince yourself that it's love. Amnon wanted her body. Sex. It's as simple as that. He just called it love. It's masquerading as love, but it's glands. Verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Amnon is obsessed with Tamar to the point of making himself sick. He burns with illicit passion. He continues to feed that obsession by thinking about her night and day. He goes to bed thinking about her, wakes up with her on his mind. He's lovesick. This verse reveals why he can't stop scrolling her Instagram. This verse reveals why he can't stop watching her TikToks. It reveals why he goes out of his way to catch a glimpse of her. She is a virgin. The word here is a virgin of marriageable age. She's sexually mature, but still a virgin. She's of age. She's ready. But it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. What does this mean? See, 
Amnon and Absalom had their own separate houses. But Tamar didn't have her own house. She lived in secluded quarters away from her male siblings. All the royal daughters lived together under protective oversight. Surrounded by a 24-hour security detail to protect the, the royal princesses. She was carefully guarded and could not easily be seduced. Verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. Amnon's friend is also his first cousin. David's brother's boy. Jesse's third son had a son named Jonadab. Jonadab seems Amnon, he sees him moping around his house and he asks, why are you so long-faced, haggard? Why are you so haggard? It's a word that means weak and scrawny. Amnon has lost weight because he's so lovesick. Well, you're pale. Your cheeks are sunken in. I can see your ribs. What is wrong with you? I want my brother's sister. But I can't have her. Now, a good friend, a good friend would have been like, hold up, your brother's sister? So your sister, what is wrong with you? Amnon really is one of the slimiest, most pathetic men in the Bible. He's used to getting what he wants as the favored child, and he can't handle it when he doesn't. So he protests like a child. And refuses to eat. Jonadab is not a good friend. He was a shrewd friend. He cooks up a scheme where Amnon feigns sickness, lures his sister into his house, and then rapes her. There are some scholars, like Doug Wilson, who believe that Jonadab was arranging a consensual encounter, and he had no idea that Amnon would take it that far. I'm not so sure. He's a buzzard, and I think he knew. Jonadab was streetwise. He had insight without integrity. The text says he was very crafty. This doesn't mean he can make crafts. It means he was shrewd, wily, subtle in his work, camouflaging his sin. He gets a thrill from setting up the sins of others. This is premeditated, and he's an accessory to the crime. You know who else was crafty? Satan in the garden. Same language used to describe the serpent. Shrewd in convincing others to sin. Which leads us to pick up another truth. The serpent in the garden sometimes speaks through a friend. The serpent in the garden sometimes speaks through a friend. Jonadab slithers onto the scene and suggests grasping at what is forbidden. Hear me. 
you don't need this kind of friend. Anyone who makes it easy for you to sin is not a friend. Friends don't aid and abet. Enemies do. Amnon saw no way to do his sin, but he had a friend. Verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to him, Amnon said to the king, Please, let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Amnon begins to execute the plan of his friend. King David rushes over when he hears his treasured son is sick. What's wrong, my boy? What can daddy do for you? Here, let me fluff your pillow. Hey, dad, remember when my sister Tamar made those cakes? I love those cakes. No one can bake cakes like her. Will you make her leave the royal princess quarters and come over and make some cakes for me? Anything you want, Amnon. The original word for cake in the Hebrew, only used one time in the Bible, actually, this word here. The original word for cake is related to the word heart. So it was either heart-shaped cakes or heart-shaped dumplings or heart-strengthening kind of pastry. It had something to do with hearts. The theme of hearts you will find runs throughout the chapter. David unwittingly sent his daughter Tamar into a very scary and treacherous situation. He missed the hints about the heart-shaped cakes. He's totally oblivious to his son's strange behavior. Verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And there she is. Tamar, she's packing her bags. She's heading that way. She's got all the ingredients needed. And it's here that we want to jump into the story and scream, Don't do it, Tamar. Don't walk out of that house. It's a trap. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes. Notice these three words. In his sight. And baked the cakes. Evidently from where Amnon was lying. Either his bedroom or his couch or wherever it was. It was by the kitchen. She's gracefully moving around the kitchen engaged in food preparation. He watches her cook. He's pining away. His imagination is working overtime. She is a skillful cook and a caring sister. She finishes the meal, plates it, and brings it over to his bedside table. Here, big brother, eat up. Verse 9, and she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Tamar doesn't know why he wants the room cleared, but she just does it. She trusted him. Trust is a key element in abuse. He's luring her into a place where she is alone. As soon as the royal guard closes the door and makes their way back to the other princesses at the palace, verse 10, 
And Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Still, she seemed to suspect nothing. She's innocent. She's beautiful. She's caring. And she's in danger. Verse 11. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. Amnon grabs her wrist. Terror strikes her heart. She can't escape his vice-like grip. And it only gets tighter. Verse 12, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. She attempts to escape, but he's too strong. She begins to plead, first on the basis of their religious identity. We are Israelites. The Canaanites might do this type of thing, but, but not God's people. This is against Yahweh. Amnon could care less about God. So Tamar tries to find a way through his hormones to his heart. Think of what this would mean for me, Amnon. She pleads for her honor. I would never be able to show my face again. You know what this would do to me. It would destroy me. Where could I carry my shame? He obviously doesn't care about her, her shame, or her mental scars. So she moves on. She moves on from think of what this would do to me into think of what this would mean for you. You would never be on the throne. You would reduce yourself to the level of a fool. You'll never be king if you do this. Even if you don't care about destroying my life, you must care about destroying your political career. But that argument seems to fall on deaf ears and animalistic cravings. Next, Tamar says, Ask the king if you can have me. He will give me to you. Now, would the king have done that? No. But she's clutching at straws. She's drawing on every argument she can muster. Sibling marriages is out of the question legally. But this is a desperate attempt to escape. She's saying anything in order to get away. She said no. She says no at least three times. One should have sufficed. Her protest was thorough. She resisted both verbally and physically. Amnon is not convinced by the religious, relational, or rational considerations. So, verse 14, he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. It's a graphic description, one I'm not interested in elaborating on. He was stronger than her. He forced her. He humiliated her. The terror lasts four minutes and her whole life has changed forever. I really don't like this English translation. 
he laid with her. In the Hebrew, there is no with. He laid her. Throughout history, men have used strength to abuse women. Violence against women is godless. God has given you men strength to protect women, not to abuse them. This is more than rape. It is incest. This incestuous action is brutal and detestable. Verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. Get up and get out. He used her and discarded her. Once the pleasure was grasped, the person was deserted. The rapist hates his victim after it's over. This is not an unusual scenario. The excessive love in the beginning turns into excessive hate in the end. Immediately after his release, the satisfaction turned to rot in his soul. He never loved her. He only lusted after her. True love never violates another person's body to satisfy their selfish appetites. Verse 16. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not, this is a theme with him, but he would not listen to her. She's making an appeal to his humanity. She speaks truth to him after he violated her. What bravery. You, you know I can't marry after this. You'll know I'll be destitute after this. I'll be destroyed after this. I will not be able to function in society after this. Tamar, shut up and get out. Verse 17. Amnon called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. The Hebrew says, Put this thing out of my presence. Not this woman, but this thing. Put this out. Get rid of this junk. Get her out of my sight. She's impersonal trash to be dumped out at the curb. She's manhandled again. And dumped outside. Let's stop here and pick up another truth. The faults and failures of parents are often reproduced in their children. The child, Amnon, the child repeats the parent's sin. Amnon repeated David's sin. The sin sown by the father is harvested in the child. Amnon is just to chip off the old block. Turns out the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. David became obsessed with a beautiful woman that didn't belong to him. Amnon became obsessed with a beautiful woman that didn't belong to him. David watched Bathsheba bathe and committed adultery in his mind. Amnon watched Tamar cook and committed adultery in his mind. David slept with Bathsheba and sent her away. Amnon raped Tamar and threw her away. 
like father, like son. Amnon's actions are David's sins 2.0. This is chapter 11 on steroids. Amnon takes the sin to new levels. The son goes further than the father. He repeats the father's sin, but in more tragic ways. David planted the seeds for what subsequently happened in his family. See, grace does not run in the bloodstream. But corruption does. Your sins will be passed along and taken up by your kids. It's a horror for parents to watch their children repeat their own sins. Verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servants put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head. And tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She's on the street screaming and running. She leaves totally destroyed, totally devalued. She feels defiled. It's sad that the innocent feels the defilement the most. Her spirit's torn. Her body's torn. As a token of her torn virginity, she tears her long robe. The long robe was a symbolic laden, richly ornamented coat. It was a diverse colored garment like the king's daughters wore. That's how all virgin princesses dressed from early adolescence on. The words for long robe with sleeves are the same as Joseph's coat of many colors. Remember Joseph's coat of many colors? His brother threw him in a pit and took the coat and splashed animal blood on it and told the father he was killed by a wild animal. So we have here in the Old Testament two coats of many colors, both torn, both bloodstained, considering what had just been done to her. A princess, this, this public figure shouldn't be seen like this running through the streets, ashes on her head, ripped clothing. But she doesn't care. She will not be silenced. She doesn't go down without a fight. She let people know what happened to her. This is her reporting. She grieves, and then she tells. Which leads us to this. If you've been a Tamar, you have a place to take your shame. If you've been a Tamar, you have a place to take your shame. In a crowd this size, there have been multiple people who have been victims of sexual assault. One in six women and one in 30 men have been sexually abused in this country. It's probably more since it's so underreported. Every 56 minutes, someone is forcibly raped in the U.S. If you were one of them, I want you to know you are more than a statistic to God. Whether it was a four-minute terror one time or a systematic event that occurred over and over by a sibling or parent or family friend, I want you to understand that God counts your tossings in the night. You are not responsible for the evil that someone else did to you. Tamar was not to blame 
There's no need for her to say, I should have said no in a different way. I I shouldn't have made that meal. You are not responsible for the evil that someone else did to you. He can take your body, but he can't take your soul. He can't take your worth. He can't take your holiness. He can't take what God has given to you. What happened to Tamar? Well, that's an interesting question. After the next verse, we never hear of her again. That verse says she lived as a desolate woman for the rest of her life. Desolate means like a desert. She walks onto the stage of our narrative, a vibrant, loving, caring, beautiful woman, and leaves a broken, tattered, and torn wreck. She's been trapped, ignored, assaulted, despised, banished, and ruined. Is that the only hope you have? Is that the future that you're destined to endure? I submit to you that the gospel presses into the hurt and pain of the sexual assault victim. And here's how. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins at the cross, but bears our shame. The shame of that moment. The shame of that memory. You don't need to go live a desolate life. You have hope in Christ. When Tamar cries, where could I carry my shame? We answer to the cross of Christ. Jesus gives you a new way of defining yourself. You are no longer defined by your abuse. Rather, you're defined by the abuse suffered for you. Jesus defines you, not that assault. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. I'm picturing this scene of Absalom outside of his house. He sees this screaming, tear-stained, disheveled sister running to him. I wonder why... She didn't run to her father, but instead ran to her brother. Absalom's first guess was right. Did Amnon force you? See, he knew something was off with Amnon, the way he looked at her. Absalom is not surprised by the news. She goes on to live with her brother. Having lost her virginity, she was no longer a prospect for marriage. She could no longer be in the apartment with the other virgins. She's disqualified from any royal marriage contracts. Disqualified through no fault of her own. Some people think that Absalom's advice sounds dismissive. Don't worry about it, Tamar. Pay no attention to it. Don't take it so hard. Keep quiet about it. We'll solve it within the parameters of the family. Is this a cover-up? Is he silencing the victim? No. He's saying, don't let this break your heart because I will break his neck. You don't have to take this to heart because I will. Hold your peace because I will not hold mine. Sis, if anyone else did this, 
I, I would deal with it today. But since it's our half-brother, it's going to take some time. Notice the mention of heart again, this theme continuing throughout the chapter. Verse 21. When King David heard all these things, he was angry. David heard that his daughter moved houses. He heard about the sexual assault. He heard she went running and screaming through the streets. He heard what Amnon did. He heard it was all premeditated. David's angry. He's irate. He's furious. But he did nothing. He merely fumed and fizzed. How do you do nothing? As a king. As a father. Why didn't he imprison his son? Make him pay a fine. Exile him. He did nothing to see the criminal was brought to justice. Why? Well, the memory of his own sin shut his mouth. His own guilt paralyzed him. After his own sins, he found the rebuke of his son very, very difficult. Let's bend down and pick up this truth and meditate on it for a bit. Bad fathers neglect to discipline their children. Why do you suppose parents have a hard time dealing with the sins of their children? Well, I'm, I'm showing love to him by not disciplining him. Yes, Daddy, you, you keep listening to those lies of Satan. You don't deal with the taking of someone else's toy now. Don't be surprised when they take someone else's body later. I'm calling all fathers. I do not want this to defeat you, but I do want it to motivate you. Bad parenting usually leads to wayward children. Passivity can be a sin. David lost control of his son and it happened long before this event. Passive fathers lead to rebellious sons. David's passivity is going to create a whole new problem with his other son. His failure to act here will ultimately endanger the entire kingdom. This father is passive in the face of evil. Nowhere does David confront Amnon about this rape. Nowhere does David exile Jonadab for scheming up this plan. Fathers are entrusted with headship over their daughters. And they must ensure their safety. David doesn't. Nor is there any record of the father going to his daughter and comforting her. Passive, passive, passive. He chooses to remain clueless. David just continues to act like it didn't happen. It happened. I, I bear the scars, Dad. It happened. Stop acting like it didn't happen. See, men's great struggle is apathy. Doing nothing. Apathy and inaction. David's family is a wreck. And he's doing nothing about it. Every verse on parenting in the Bible is written to men. Here's a comforting truth we need to bend down and 
spend time on. Divine justice will be satisfied even when human justice fails. Divine justice will be satisfied even when human justice fails. The, the brutal, devastating treatment of Tamar took a wicked opportunist, Amnon, a diabolical advisor, Jonadab, and an impotent father, David. Amnon was allowed to stay in the palace with no consequences. Still running things, still growing in influence, still being the favored son. For Tamar, she lives with seeing the abuser all the time. Seeing him in the palace, seeing him with her dad, seeing him get away with abuse. She's battling with the betrayal, the anxiety, the distrust, the PTSD that follows. Will she ever get justice? Yes. Divine justice will be satisfied even when human justice fails. This assault is registered by God. There are no cold cases in heaven. He knows all and he will deal with all. Verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom possesses a rage that can wait. He plans this revenge, but in the future. Absalom must be very disappointed in his father. His daddy was the giant slayer. But where is he now? Spent his entire life protecting Israel? but refusing to protect his own daughter? If David would have acted, Absalom would not have given himself the green light for revenge. But there was no action. There was no justice. Someone must defend the honor of my sister. If my dad will not do it, I will. Verse 23. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazer, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let, let us not all go. This would be a burdensome to you. He pressed him, but David would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. It's been two years, but Absalom has been buying time waiting for retaliation. Revenge is a dish better served cold. French author Emile Gaborio wrote, Revenge is a luscious fruit which you must leave to ripen. Absalom certainly did. By now, Amnon has let his guard down, and it's revenge time. A sheep-shearing party was a time of joy and feasting. It was customary to arrange great feasts during this season. It was a festive occasion. You made lots of money, and it was a social obligation to celebrate with other people. It's held on Absalom's farm about 14 miles from Jerusalem. Absalom invited David, but he knew David wouldn't come. 
So he requested a reasonable replacement, the king's replacement, the king's firstborn, Amnon. David senses, senses something's off. He's not ignorant of the friction that exists between the two boys. But Absalom presses him and David folds. David lacked the resolve necessary to investigate and confront the problem brewing within his own family. We've seen David as warrior. We've seen David as king. And now we see David as patsy. He's lost his discernment and gets fooled twice in this chapter. Each time by a son. He's not as perceptive as he used to be. He used to be known for wisdom and keen insight. But now he's delivering his daughter into the hands of a rapist. Now he's delivering his son into the hands of a murderer. Sin makes you lose your discernment. Verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants. Mark when Amnon's heart, again, theme of heart. Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for, for I have, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Now, mules don't sound royal to us, but they were a sign of royalty during this period in ancient Israel. When all the sons from all the other wives and concubines, when, when all the sons, when all the king's sons saw Absalom kill Amnon, they thought they were next. So they jumped on their mules and they rode, rode out. They thought this was a Don Kellyon thing, killing all the rivals in one day. See, David's second son had died much earlier. So when Absalom the third son, kills Amnon, the first son, Absalom is next in line for David's throne. The killing has a dual purpose, avenge his sister's rape and clear the way for him to sit on the throne. <laughs> I tried, church. I really tried. But it's hard to find good guys in this text. They are all bad. Absalom appears at first as, a, as good, and then we see he has multiple motives for defending his sister. He decides to manage the problem in the darkness rather than bringing it into the light. Verse 30. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons. And not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments apparently rumors got to David before the official messengers he receives a false report every son of yours is dead all the king's sons are dead he believes the rumors he has no reason not to he begins to mourn publicly by ripping his clothes this is the second time royal robes have been ripped in the passage the first time his daughter did it now he does it verse 32 but Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons. For Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. 
Now therefore, let not my lord the king take it to heart to suppose that all the king's son are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Now, Jonadab, he's in the text again. That slime ball seems to be at the right place at the right time. He gives David the good news. He's, he's apparently known of Absalom's plot to kill Amnon for the entire two-year period. As he's talking, just then a group of mules approached Jerusalem from the west, even though Belhazar was northwest, suggesting that they took a longer route, which helps explain how the report came before they arrived. Uh, look, look, here they are, king. Here come all the king's sons, riding mules, kicking dust up on their path. They all jumped off and wept loudly and mourned. Verse 37, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Ahamehud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom fled 80 miles to his mother's homeland. He fled to his grandfather on his mother's side where he remained in exile for three years. David's got a lot of sons. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God that your salvation doesn't rest on David's sons. It rests on David's son, Jesus Christ. All the king's sons is a phrase that is repeated a few times in the text. More than a few, six times. The future of God's kingdom lay in all the king's sons. Amnon, he was the, king's next big, the kingdom's next big thing. I mean, the most obvious candidate to fulfill God's promise to David. But he turned out to be a disgusting sexual predator. Absalom. He wouldn't leave vengeance in the hands of God. Instead, he decided to manage the situation himself. All the king's sons have wicked hearts. But God would send one through the line of David who had a pure heart. The heart cakes in our text find their ultimate fulfillment in him. He's the only son of David with a pure heart. David's latest wife Bathsheba will bear Solomon and Nathan. Both lines will lead to Jesus. It's in this son that the sinful hearts and the broken hearts can find salvation. He did what all the king's sons failed to do. He lived a sinless life. He didn't abuse like Amnon. He was abused. He didn't murder like Absalom. He was murdered. Friend, repent of your Amnon heart. Repent of your Absalom heart. Believe in Jesus Christ and trust his perfect heart alone for your soul's salvation. Some of you say, you've said it to me. I, I can't become a Christian because of stuff like this in the text. I've seen too many bad things happen to believe in God. I ran into broken and tattered Tamar on the streets. Why didn't God do something? Beloved, he did do something. He sent his son to die on Calvary. To save you from something a lot worse than rape. To save you from eternal wrath. 
Turn away from your sin and turn to the perfect son of David. I've got one more application I want to give you. Jesus invites you to a table where you will not be violated. In fact, this table reveals he was violated for you. Jesus invites you to a table where you will not be violated. In fact, this table reveals he was violated for you. Amnon wanted Tamar to come to his table, make food at the table, plate it on the table. She did, and she was violated right there at the table. And I wondered as I was studying this text two weeks ago, if, if the table, if tables became a trigger for her. If every time she saw a table, it brought back horrible memories. Well, God is in the business of turning triggers into treasures. Jesus invites us to a table where he will not violate us. In fact, the table points to the fact that on the cross, Jesus was violated for us. My wife, Sarah, we have um, four kids. Two of them are sick today, but my wife, Sarah... And I, we're in a group text with a couple who used to be in our church. They left, they moved away, they live in another country, but we still keep this group text going. They still keep up with everything here, but just from a distance. Watch the sermons and, and keep up with when we're doing the Lord's table. The wife sent this in our group text. She said, I can't wait to see how you connect chapter 13 to the Lord's table. I was wondering that myself. Then she said, can't wait to move from the table of the foolish son of David to the table of the flawless son of David. Friends, that's good. And that's what we're going to do now.